Greetings, my good people. How are you? What's happening? Is your year getting off to a good start? All is well in your world? Sticking to those resolutions, I hope. Well, here we are on the first Monday in January, and the first Monday of 2019 for that matter, as I deliver the latest and greatest in the world of sports here on the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. So for those listening for the very first time, wondering what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and full effect. So welcome aboard for those first timers, and thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast. And for those who have been with me from episode 1, 20, 40, and now 47, I welcome you guys back. Again, Monday, January 7th in the year of our Lord, 2019, first show of the year. And with that being said, lots to discuss where we have a national title game in college football out in Santa Clara between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Clemson Tigers going for round three, although this is the fourth year in a row that they're playing in the semifinal slash championship uh, title game. We'll touch on that a little bit. Also, everything that's happening in the world of the NBA, Brooklyn Nets, how about them? Break them up as they're doing well and actually have put themselves in some playoff position. Granted that we're not even halfway through, but we'll talk about them for a second, as well as everything that's going around the league, some NHL stuff, the Mets making some trades. Yeah, not of the sexy, more blockbuster type that a lot of the Mets fans are hoping for. But uh, you'll get my assessment on that, as well as the Yankees re-signing Zach Britton. But we'll start off with the NFL wildcard recap of this past weekend. And we'll go in chronological order. I know the games yesterday in Baltimore and Chicago were the most intriguing. But we'll start Saturday down in Energy Stadium with the Texans and Colts. And interestingly enough, I picked all four road teams to win these games. Now, forget about point spreads. Put those aside. It's just win or loss. And with the Colts... And as well as they've been playing over the last couple of months of the season, going into Houston, and Houston, who, let's face it, they had a very good year, excellent year, 11-5. and Deshaun Watson coming back from that ACL injury. You were thinking that maybe perhaps they could make a little bit of a run here, despite the fact that the Texans certainly do not have the offensive firepower, despite the fact having an all-pro in DeAndre Hopkins as a, as a wideout. But it was pretty much too much of the Colts, and not only that, not enough offense or skill position players for the Texans to come back in this game to make any hay. And that's what you pretty much got. If the Colts were somehow to some way be neutralized in that first quarter, when you get a 14-0 lead before you could sit in your seat and you have to play catch-up the whole game and you know Watson was going to try to make plays and he did with his legs and with his arm. Didn't have a great game by any stretch. But at the same time, you knew that with a big lead at home, pressure, the performance, the spotlight, and we know that this kid could perform in a big spotlight. We've seen it in college, and I understand you can't translate that to the pros, but you don't think, or you wouldn't think that he'd be scared of the opportunity and of the pressure that laid ahead of him being down 14 nothing. But still, it was too much to overcome. He throws an interception there late in that first quarter where they had to go for it on fourth down. They had to make a statement there. I didn't oppose a Bill O'Brien's move there to try to get that first down, it turned into an interception, of course. And then even at the half, or right before the half, knowing that they had to score a touchdown there, to me a field goal, and I get it that you want to put points on the board, you want to go into the locker room at least with a semblance of having some confidence, knowing that you were able to move the ball, you got points on the board, and then hopefully you could take it from there. But to me, I thought it was the right move. You had to go for a touchdown there. What is a field goal going to do down 21 nothing? So can't kill Bill O'Brien on that. And the Colts... Listen, even after 21 nothing, you would think that they were going to go on to a you know easy 30-7 to win. Now, they got a touchdown there late there, the Texans, for pretty much window dressing with the touchdown to Kiki Kuti. And I tell you, a disappointing year for the Texans when you lose your first three, win nine in a row, and then close out the season 11-5. and You do have a three seed. You host a home game, and that's it. That's how the NFL works. That's how the NFL operates. Sadly, they go home and they will not go to New England, which I think actually helps the NFL when you look at the divisional playoff games, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Houston, just a disappointing end to this season. And not to pick on this guy, but I've always said, for a guy that has been as dominant as defensive player as he has been, when healthy, and J.J. Watt, other than that pass that was tipped in the air and was intercepted in the game, what was in the second quarter, J.J. Watt was not to be heard from in this game. And it's just typical. You know, he could have all the sacks against Jacksonville he wants. He could have all the sacks against the dregs, you know, Buffalo, et cetera. But in huge, enormous games and big moments, the man's nowhere to be found. 
And yesterday was just indicative of that, or Saturday, now that we're here on a Monday recording this. So if you're the Colts, you're flying high. Your offensive line, as solid as it's been, we have all pros left and right. Quentin Nelson, a guy that a lot of people looked around the league when the Colts drafted him and said, eh, you know, again, not a sexy pick. But we know that in order for the Colts to be successful, they have to keep number 12 upright. And not only have they certainly done that this year, but they did that the other day. And now they move on to play the Kansas City Chiefs there in the first game of the divisional playoff on Saturday. As far as the night game, Dallas and Seattle, tooth and nail back and forth there, especially when you get to the second half. I know a lot is going to be discussed about the Cowboys and Dak Prescott and what he did as far as being able to move the ball, move with his legs, and actually you know, was pretty efficient. And he's shown a lot of confidence other than that Colt game well, they got shut out a few weeks ago. But Prescott's probably playing as best as he has, even going back to his rookie year when he went 13-3 and and had a top seed there in the NFC. So now, here they are. They were down 6-3 there late in the first half. And think about it. It was a – I thought it was just a stupid call by the coach, Jason Garrett, where he went for the field goal there, 58 yards. I mean, what was that all about? Which led to the field goal. But then the two big – series of this game was right after that down 6-3 they were able to come back and score a touchdown to Michael Gallup there good throw there by Prescott and then later on at 14-10 after the Seahawks score there late in the third quarter you think the momentum is shifting going in their direction they answer right back with a touchdown drive of their own Zeke Elliott punches into the end zone and the Cowboys although they had to a little bit of a scare there as they're going in for the uh to extend the lead Prescott throws an interception which you do have to worry about him in spots because you know he's very turnover-prone, especially when it comes to fumbling the ball. He's had his issues there trying to secure the ball in moments like that. But in this case, he threw a pick there in the end zone to K.J. Wright. But it was uh, not to be uh, hurt for them in the long run. So the Cowboys then pretty much cruise from there. I understand you got a little bit of a late scare there with the touchdown and the two-point conversion, so you're sweating there wondering about an onside kick. But with Janikowski pulling a hamstring on a long field goal there right before the half, not having to deal with him throughout throughout the rest of the game. And you had the punter not only trying to practice uh, field goal kicks on the side, but also does a drop kick for a, an onside kick. Uh, listen, well, what are you going to do there? I mean, it's a tough spot. You know, when you lose your place kicker, knowing that you have pretty much no shot of getting the ball back when you have a guy who's never done it before, I mean, what could you say? But the Cowboys, although – a little dicey there late in the third quarter. I'm sure you're kind of wondering, you know, they're not going to say you're going to go back to that game in 2006 with Romo. You had visions of, oh, God, Seattle and winning another wild card game this time in Dallas. But be it as it may, the Cowboys were able to be efficient. Obviously, Zeke Elliott had a big game after the week off last week to rest his uh, legs. He had a big game on the ground. Prescott also was very good. Mari Cooper. I know they suffered a bad injury there with Alan Hearns, the dislocating of his ankle, which supposedly everything is fine. He tweeted that, uh, you know, surgery, everything has gone well. So good for him. And the Cowboys now face the Rams out in L.A., which would be your Saturday night game there in the uh, divisional round. And then yesterday's games, I mean, what could you say? I said last week, you know, everybody was on that Lamar Jackson bandwagon, and I'm going to put a lot on him, but a lot of this has to fall on John Harbaugh. I mean, he coached this game as if he was ready to – just fill out his walking papers and head to his next coaching gig. I mean, it was as bad as that. You know, how is it that when you look at what happened throughout the course of the game where the Chargers put seven defensive backs to neutralize not only the running game but just the threat of Lamar Jackson, and then it's not until the fourth quarter when you're down 23-3 to where you say, hey, all right, let's start passing the ball and throwing it all over the lot, which, believe it or not, after all that, they were pretty much dominated the whole game. Lamar Jackson did absolutely nothing for three and a half quarters. And then all of a sudden, he rises from the dead, throws two touchdown passes, one, that nice one, the Crabtree on the sideline. And I'm sure as a Raven fan, as much as they were clamoring for Joe Flacco to come in the game, you're probably saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, where was this in the second quarter? Where was this in the third quarter? And obviously he did not adjust to that until late in the game when it was too late. And despite the fact that they had the ball with 40 seconds left, knowing that, you know, no timeouts, that they were trying to take a shot, then at that case... The Chargers pass rush, who had seven sacks on the day and had an excellent game plan for Lamar Jackson. They were able to secure the win 23-17.
kind of a crazy game when you think about it because as much as you can look at it from a defensive standpoint, now the final score is not going to indicate that, but for the first two and a half quarters, well, really first three quarters, because the touchdown that they scored to make it at that time 20 to 3, well, it was 18 to 3, and then they attacked a two point conversion, was in the fourth quarter. And the game was all field goals, and it was a defensive struggle. But to me, Ravens were playing very good defense. And the Chargers, although they were playing very good defense as well, but a lot of it had to do with the ineptitude and the lack of adjustments on offense for the Ravens. Because if they see that they had nine guys in the box, especially when you have seven defensive backs, don't you think that, hey, wait a second, let's try to spread them out, throw the ball, and see if we can uh, get some chunks through the air that way as opposed to trying to run everything. And their offense was just so predictable. They were brutal to even watch. I mean, Listen, watching that game pretty much set the league back 50 years, especially from the Ravens' offensive standpoint. And I understand toward the latter part of the game, especially when you look at the latter part of the fourth quarter when they came marching back and they scored the two touchdowns. And if you're Raven fans, I know you're pulling your hair out of your heads wondering where was this early in the game. And I understand Joe Flacco. I thought Jim Harbaugh or John Harbaugh, excuse me, did the right thing by not bringing in Flacco. To me, that would have been just a panic button move. And I get that your season's on the line and maybe even your coaching career is on the line because who knows if he's going to be out. There were a lot of rumors swirling toward the end of the year whether or not he was going to be back. But when you look at how the Ravens were unable to just move the ball an inch for three-plus quarters, and a lot of it had to do with not necessarily just Jackson. Now, he was dreadful. He was putrid. He was – I mean, listen, there's no other way to cut it. But at the same time, they certainly didn't adjust and look – to see what they were doing to say, hey. And I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with not being able to trust the kid. We're down 23 to 3. All right, no pressure. We got to spread them out. We can't run the ball. We got to do something. And then, obviously, they were able to score. They were able to do what it, you know, do whatever it is that they needed to do. And sure enough, they made the game interesting and a lot closer than it should have been. So, and now, here you are. If you're a Charger fan, you move on. Five seed, and that was one of the things that I talked about last week as far as the five seeds, how they're going to do. Now, Seattle, they didn't uphold their end of the bargain. Although they were in the game until you know mid-fourth quarter, but certainly couldn't seal the deal where the Chargers obviously jumped out to a big lead, had to hang on for dear life there at the end. But now they move on to Foxborough to play the Patriots in the 1 o'clock game on Sunday. And if you're a Raven fan, I understand there's a lot of promise. It was pretty much said in the postgame how there's no way that Joe Flacco's going to come back. He's going to be moving on, which is no secret. And it's pretty much going to be Lamar Jackson's team. But if I'm Lamar Jackson right now, I'm calling up whomever it may be, Kurt Warner, uh, any Hall of Fame quarterback of the past. And listen, we well, you know what he could do with his legs. And he probably has to bulk up a little bit. I believe he just turned 22. But he needs to have some sort of pocket presence and some awareness. And I get it. It's his first year. He's He played the last eight games of the season. He propelled their team pretty much in essence to this playoff position that they had yesterday. But if he's going to improve, and I've said it time and time again, you know, you want this guy to be in the league for a long time. You don't want him to be a flash in the pan. You don't want him to be Vince Young. You don't want him to be a guy like that. And if I'm Lamar Jackson, I am right now in the lab trying to call up whomever it is and work on my mechanics, work on whatever it is as far as him being that pocket passer because – if he's going to continue to perform in this level, A, the league's going to catch up to him, which they did yesterday. And then B, he's just going to put himself at risk of being injured at any given moment. And again, you know, he's not built like Cam Newton or Dante Culpepper of quarterbacks past. So granted that he's young and he can still develop into his body, but at the same time, you know, he's not built like those guys, despite the fact that he's tall and lean. So that's your situation there with the Chargers and the Ravens. And as far as the late game yesterday, I understand everybody's going to talk about the Foles magic and everybody's going to look at, oh, here they go. They're going to try to duplicate what they did last year and who, you know, Carson Wentz who and so on and so forth. But let's face it, if you're a Chicago Bear fan this morning, you are sick to your stomach that you lost this game. And I, you got to put an A on their defense and also on their coaching. Because Matt Nagy and how he handled portions of that game, especially toward the end of the game, not using the timeouts there, we could, we could talk about till the cows come home. But as I said last week on the podcast, this team does not have a lot of wideouts. They don't have big play threats. I know Allen Robinson had a very good game yesterday, had an excellent game for that matter. And he made 
enormous contributions. But, you know, it's not as if they have a ton of wideouts and a ton of weapons that they could actually pass catching players out of the backfield. Oh, wait, they have Tariq Cohen. Where was that man yesterday? Other than the kickoff return after the touchdown that the Eagles had, you know, with a minute to go, he had the kickoff. That was his biggest play of the game. This man was not to be seen, not to be heard of. Matt Nagy, this is a guy that you relied on all year. All right, Jordan Howard, I understand he's your feature back, but at the same time, here's a guy that is an X factor, that is a weapon that not a lot of teams have in this league. In fact, he's a Darren Sproles light type of player. Where was he factored into the offensive game plan? So to me, that didn't make any sense. And not only that, but when you look at how the defense played throughout most of the game, and I understand that the touchdown, the first touchdown that the Eagles got were on the two penalties. I know that third and long, they got the unsportsmanlike conduct, which was tough. I mean, it's a call they're going to make. What are you going to do? And then Amukamara gets called for a pass interference on, down the sideline, which led to the touchdown. All right, fine. You know, you got to live with that. You got to deal with that. But at 15-10, there is no way. And Nick Foles did not have a good game, but he had a great final drive. He made a key throw on third and nine there, which set him up pretty much in the red zone. And then to think, on fourth down, Fourth down after two runs, and then they had the pass data was incomplete. Fourth down to pretty much go on to the next round to play in L.A. But what happens? Complete Golden Tate touchdown. Matt Nagy, I don't know what he was, you know, what he was doing throughout the course of that, you know, that whole instance, especially when he had the two runs there, which uh, pretty much milked the clock. You figure out to use one of those timeouts there, don't you? I get he tried to save a timeout, but why are you thinking about saving a timeout? You have a big-time defense. You got to try to stop them there, and they actually had them. And you could say, hey, for three downs they did, but as we all know, you got to get that fourth down stop, and they didn't, which is bad. And then, obviously, the plays that led up after the kickoff, you know, the setup Cody Parkey, and I get it. Where was Tariq Cohen? How about a screen pass there? I understand on that third down you don't want to get sacked. You don't want to put yourself out of field goal range either, but do something safe there. Again, Tariq Cohen, you haven't used him the whole game. Imagine having a screen there, over there to the side, have him run out of bounds instead of kicking from 43. I understand there wasn't a lot of wind at Soldier Field there yesterday, but still, make the kick easier for a guy who's had his troubles in the past. And he is Cody Parkey. I mean, the guy's not Adam Vinatieri. And then what happens? Left, up, right, to the crossbar, and out, not in. Bears go home. I mean, that's just as ugh. That's as brutal as a loss that you could possibly ever have. And Trubisky had a, had a very good game. I thought Trubisky wasn't going to be ready for prime time. I thought he was, wasn't going to be ready for the bright lights. But he certainly performed very well. To me, Nagy, what was his offensive game plan? Not having Cohen in there. I mean, please, give me a break. And then the Eagles did nothing. When you think about it, they did nothing offensively throughout the course of the game. Only in the spots where it mattered. Now, granted, again, the one drive where they had a touchdown, they had the two big penalties against that goal against, uh, went against the Bears. All right, fine. But then that final drive, you know, Alshon Jeffrey had made some plays. All right, fine. But they got nothing from their running game. They did. Uh, listen, they were not effective at all. And I understand Foles' numbers at the end of the day. You know, Foles threw a bad pick in the end zone there in the first half. You know, Foles did not have a good game, but that final drive is what cements it, and everybody thinks, oh, hey, here we go. The magic carpet ride begins. But guess where that copper ride is now going to next? New Orleans, where they got waxed 48-7. I believe it's sometime in mid-November. So that uh, sets us up for the four games next week. And I, there's no way the four road teams are going to be winning next week. So that uh, was my prediction last weekend. That's not going to be the case this weekend. And kind of touch on those games. The first game, I think the Colts... My problem here is that the Colts... And I didn't give Eric Greenbaum a lot of props. Here's a guy that scored 11 total touchdowns in his, ta- you know, his tenure in Detroit, and he has 15 touchdowns this year. So he's certainly been a monumental pickup for the Colts this year. I really think that the Colts, they have a lot of gas in their tank. And that's not to say that the Chiefs do not. The Chiefs do. But here's the two things that scare me. Funny enough, I just mentioned Matt Nagy, who's a uh, Andy Reid disciple. The two things that scare you, and I've said it all year long, Chiefs defense and their coach. In big spots. If this game is close, this is going to be you, – you're going to have to hold your breath, Chief fans, to get to the end, to the finish line, if your ch- team has a chance to win. And I, I hate to say it. I actually like the Colts in this game. I think the Colts, they're going to keep them upright. I understand they got some pass rushes there. We know, you know Justin Houston went healthy, but he hasn't really been the same player. And now with 
the Colts. T.Y. Hilton, we all know, is their biggest threat. Marlon Mack has a, you know, it's a ground presence, which helps out and moves the chains and eats up clock, which is big because you want to keep that chief offense off the field. Don't know what the weather's going to be like. It's early to predict, or I don't have a forecast in front of me. But when you have a team like the Colts, kind of reminds me of the year, the what was it? The 2014 year, I believe it was, when the Colts, or maybe 2015, when the Colts went into Denver, remember Denver was the one seed, and they went in there, and then they won, and then they lost to New England in the AFC Championship game. I kind of get that feel here too. And I'm not saying that to jump on a bandwagon. I'm not saying that, hey, you know, because they won and the Chiefs had the week off. No, no, no. I think the Chiefs are, have a legitimate shot to win this game. And when you look at the history between these two teams in the playoffs, going back to 95, when the Chiefs were a one seed and Indy went in there to beat them, when Lynn Elliott missed that field goal there, late in the game, and Indianapolis had to go to Pittsburgh for an AFC title game. Or the game in 2001, I believe it was, oh no, it was the 3 season, Priest Holmes at the peak of his powers, and their offense was just as unstoppable and dominant then. And what did Peyton Manning do? He went in there and won 38-35, ousted them from the playoffs. And then, how can we forget Andy Reid's first game as a chief coach, up 38-10 in Indianapolis, and they lose that game. I understand at some point that Hex has to somehow, some way be wiped out. They have to slay that dragon. But with the Colts defense playing well, we all know about Darius Leonard. Kenny Moore is, of course, making a name for himself. That team is certainly, they're playing with a lot of confidence. And Frank Reich is going to take chances. You know he's not going to play close to the vest. He's going to do very well. I'd like the Colts in this game. Because I got to see it with the Chiefs. I have to see it. And we've seen him in big spots. Now, granted, this is Mahomes' first playoff game. So we're going to see what he's going to be able to do. And chances are he may be the MVP of the league. But I can see the Colts running the ball. Chief defense is not all that. And the Colts can score. So can they score as much as the – or have the firepower match what Kansas City does? Absolutely not. But at the same time, I like the Colts in this game. And if the Colts – I can see it now. If the Colts are hanging around in this game late, you know, within seven. I'm not saying – if they're down ten, you know, you would think that Kansas City is going to have to – game under control and I understand different team look at last year you know they were what 21-3 to the Titans and you know Titans certainly aren't going to scare you offensively or certainly have you shivering in your boots and what happened there and right I'm not, I don't want to compare last year's team right you can't compare seasons you know defense is pretty much still has the same personnel you know no Marcus Peters you know they're not he's not on that team anymore but you get my drift so they got the slatest dragon at some point, the Chiefs, but I don't know. I could see the Colts going in there and pulling out a victory, especially this game if they're hanging around. As far as the night game, Dallas and the Rams, I think the Cowboys are going to play well defensively, but I think the Rams, I'd be shocked. After last year's playoff loss against the Falcons at home in that wild card game, and they've had a big year. I understand they lost a little steam down the stretch. I get that. But I'd be shocked if they come out here flat. We know Todd Gurley's not healthy. He's not 100%, I should say. He's going to play, of course. And all the weapons that they have there on offense, Aaron Donald, I'm sure they're going to be chomping at the bit. Wanted to prove last year wrong. Is this a tough spot for the Cowboys? It's not going to be easy. I think they could play well defensively, but it's just a matter of when they start to wear down, especially if Gurley has a big game, especially a big first half. If they're going to make Goff throw 40, 50 times, I think they have a good shot. Not to say that Goff can't produce if he throws that much, but I think it would bode well if Gurley gets off to a slow start, get a few three and outs, and then maybe the Rams will start to play a little tight where the Cowboys are playing with house money. I could see this being a close game as well, and I could see the Rams pulling away late. That's how I look at the Saturday game. As far as Sunday goes, I'm going to be rooting hard for the Chargers, oh, big time. I do not want to see the Patriots, although I picked them to go to the Super Bowl. Listen, the Chargers, they're a live dog, man. That team, I'm sure they want to play all the games on the road. Could you imagine? If Indy wins and the Chargers win, the Chargers actually would have the home field for the AFC Championship game. You have a five hosting the six seed. But we're not going to worry about that now, but just something to stick in the back of your head. Chargers are a live dog. If Melvin Gordon was healthier, 
I would certainly give them even more of a shot because the Pat run defense is putrid. God-awful, in fact. And if you're the Chargers, I'm sure that you're going to try to, whether it's Melvin Gordon, whether it's Justin Jackson, whether it's the other kid, Echabar, any of those guys, if they just watch the tape of the Steeler game, you know, Jalen Samuels, fifth-round pick this year, I would certainly try to run the ball down their throats. And listen, this Brady offense, we all know they're resourceful, but Gronk is not the same player. Edelman, we all know, is going to make plays. You know, Philip Dorsett can make plays, but this team, they can be beat. They're tough to beat in that building, though, as we all know. And the Chargers kind of owe them one from years past. Think about the game in 2006 when the Chargers were 14-2 and and they lost that game uh, in heartbreaking fashion. Uh, when they were at the peak of their powers with Tomlinson and, of course, Phillip Rivers there. They also lost the AFC Championship game the year after. Granted that Phillip Rivers was on pretty much one leg with a torn ACL. So they've lost some tough playoff games to the Patriots in the past. So now there is some payback. And I like the Chargers. I think the Chargers could eke one out. Now, the Patriots, they always find a way, man, especially at home in their building. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do, but the Chargers, as I said last week, five seeds. If they're going to go further, I could see the Chargers just doing enough. And they have talent on defense. They have speed on defense. They have playmakers on defense. If somehow, some way, they could just – not they have to jump out to a big league like they did yesterday against the Ravens, but if they could just somehow, some way, just hang tough. And they could come from behind. We saw them do it in Kansas City, and we saw them do it in Pittsburgh. So why can't they do it here? And just based on that alone, uh, their resourcefulness, despite the fact of Brady and Belichick at home in the playoffs, I like the Chargers here. And as far as the late game Sunday, the Magic Carpet Ride is going to end there in New Orleans. There's no way, and I understand revenge. People could talk about, oh, well, they lost 48-7. They can't play as worse as they did then. Well, guess what? Their offense, let's face it, did not really show up yesterday until key moments, and I get key moments. But why is that? Because the Bears weren't able to not necessarily put them away because even though up 15-10, the defense is going to make a stop. So I'm going to put a lot on them. And as we talked about before with Nagy and his coaching staff as far as not having a better game plan as far as offensively to put the Eagles away. But there's no way. The Saints in that building and with the Eagles, as much as they put this together, this stretch here with Scotch Tape and Bubblegum, uh, the, the right ends here. Is it going to be 48-7? I don't think so, but it's going to be 34-17, 34-16. You pick the score. Whatever their point spread is, if it's 8, 10, 12, to take the Saints. Because there's no way I'd be – this would be the upset of the weekend. You know, a lot of people thought, too, last week, there were people that picked the Eagles, and rightfully so, defending champs. Foles and all that, but there were a lot of people who picked the Bears. It's like, oh, there's no way that defense, they're gonna they've been waiting for this game, a home playoff game, Chicago, whatever. And I looked at this like, wait a second. Well, you know, what have the Bears done? This case is the Saints. And I understand the Saints, even after last year, having that crucial, that crushing loss in Minnesota and the enormous season that they had to get the home field, uh, this would be a monumental upset. And I just can't see it happening. Because think about it, the Eagles have already been playing in the postseason for four straight weeks just to get here. And now they got to ramp it back up against one of the top offenses in the sport in their building, which is a track meet. So I think it's just going to be tough sledding for the Eagles there. So, All right, to wrap up a few things as far as the NFL is concerned, the jet coaching search continues. I know I talked about it last week. Uh, obviously, this is going to be a huge hire for them, and they need to get it right. I know the Jet fan is shaking in their boots, thinking that Chris Johnson, Mike McCagney are going to get this wrong. I understand everybody wants to target Mike McCarthy, the former Green Bay Packer coach. But, uh, yeah, they cannot get this wrong by any stretch. And I know last week I came on the podcast, and I said that if the Jets were to hire a coach, I would suggest that they hire somebody younger. I think McCarthy can help with Darnold. But McCarthy, is he going to be around for 10 years? Because you want this guy to be around for 10 years. Now, I'm not trying to say McCarthy is over the hill or he's long in the tooth for the NFL. Of course not. But I would think if you could find that Sean McVay guy, and I understand that Cliff Kingsbury, the guy 
that a lot of people have been clamoring after, who now USC has signed as offensive coordinator and doing whatever it takes to block him from any NFL coaching jobs. You would think a guy like that would be probably the perfect fit for the Jets long term. I get the Jet fan doesn't want that. They don't want to go down that road. But guess what? All these years from Herm Edwards, Eric Mangini, Rex Ryan, Todd Bowles, you've gone with first-time defensive coaches. It wouldn't hurt to go first-time offensive coach considering you got your franchise quarterback in the mix. So that's all I'm saying about that, but we'll certainly keep our eyes on that as we move on. Uh, Other coaching is, just like I said last week, Steve Wilkes out in Arizona. Adam Gase gone as well. I know he's uh, rumored to be possibly in the line for an interview with the Jets where the Jet fans are getting ready to jump off the nearest bridge. And then Marvin Lewis out in Cincinnati. So Cincinnati also has to get their first head coach for the first time, I believe since 2002, because Marvin Lewis has been there since 2003. So his tenure ends there in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, Over-unders. I didn't touch on these last week, but I was 2-3-1, and one, as bad as that was for the year. The only two wins I got were New Orleans and Oakland, and my losses were Seattle, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. To think, Cleveland made that late run to get over 5.5. The Bengals were 4-1, and one, and believe it or not, I had to root for them, which I didn't, to beat the Steelers to cover 6.5, and, and that didn't happen. And in New England, their number was 11, and they hit it around the button. So uh, I didn't mention that last week. So, uh, for what it's worth, I'm a week late, but uh, they were my uh, over-unders for the NFL this past year. It's certainly long to be forgotten. And then final word on the Steelers. I know a lot came out last week with the whole issue regarding Antonio Brown and his attitude toward the last week of the NFL season. There were reports about him throwing a football ticking somebody off. Ben Roethlisberger came on and said, hey, A.B.'s my guy. You know, I wouldn't be where I am without him. You know, just saying all the right things. And with Brown, all I got to say is this. I'm not going to get deep into it. Tomlin said what he said as far as taking procedures to put him in his place, for lack of a better word, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. When I say put him in his place, they're going to discipline it. Uh, behind closed doors, going to stick with the team, the team only. Uh, I think Brown is acting like a baby here. If he's looking at Juju Smith-Schuster taking some of his shine, you know, it's not as if he hasn't been targeted a million times this year or had big numbers because he did. He had 15 touchdowns. I mean, A.B., come on. But whatever it is that he's doing, he needs to wise up and realize that he's 31 years old, or he's going to be 31 this upcoming NFL season, that he's still productive, he could still perform, but he's on this team. He still has two more years of big money coming at him. And the Steelers can't do it. People think, oh, well, they could trade him. And I actually thought, hey, the Steelers could actually trade him. The Steelers draft wide receivers, uh, you know, they could spot them miles away. And I could go through the whole list, and everybody knows who follows the Steelers. They know who those players are. You know, if they got a guy like James Washington in the mix, that's coming up. And they have Justin Hunter, who showed eh, some flashes before he got hurt last year. There's guys that can replace A.B. Now, I understand that he's not you – know, he's going to be an all-pro four times over the way Antonio Brown was, catch 100 balls for five straight years. Of course not. But Juju's a guy that looks like he's going to be the heir apparent. And if Brown, if somehow, some way, the Steelers are going to try to trade him, and they can't because they're going to take a huge cap hit because he's getting paid $22 million next year. But with that being said, Brown just needs to pipe down put his ego to the side, realize that he is getting burned and he is playing and he is producing. So what's the, what's the beef? You know, it's not as if Juju caught 115 and then Brown caught 60 and had five touchdowns to Juju's 16. So now you're also hearing about reworking Ben's deal, which would be good because he's going into the last year of his contract, so they'll probably extend him a couple more years, so... We will certainly see how uh, this all shakes down with the Steelers, but right now it's all about the wild card weekend, as we just recapped, and the divisional playoff, which starts uh, Saturday. Everybody I know is looking forward to it, which to me is the best weekend of the NFL season. I understand the wild card round. uh, Everybody's pumped up because of the playoffs, but now this is the round, and you have very good games all around. I understand the Eagles are going to bring some attention based on everything that we've talked about, but uh, to me that's going to be the game I would think is going to be the most ugliest. The other games – 
I think they're going to be all close games. Like I said, maybe the Rams pull away late. And Chargers, I would think that game's probably going to go down to the wire, as well as the Chiefs and Colts. So it's going to be fascinating football. And to think we only have seven games left in the NFL season. Because then we got the championship weekend after that and then the Super Bowl and away we go. And please, if you're going to count the Pro Bowl, uh, you got some problems, my man. So uh, we'll just leave that one aside. So that's your NFL here. As uh, we recap and move on to other things to uh, touch on here on the j Rolls Podcast. All right, tonight we have a college football game, a championship that needs to be crowned out in Santa Clara, Levi Stadium, home of the Niners, where the Crimson Tide will go again for a back-to-back and a belly-to-belly. With the Clemson Tigers going up against the top-ranked team. And what could you say? This is, uh, seems like we've seen this movie before, right? Well, different cast of characters, of course, from years past. No Deshaun Watson. Of course, the two coaches are in the mix. You have the, what should have been the Heisman Trophy winner in Tua Tagovailoa. Hopefully I pronounced that right. And uh, then you have Clemson and what they're capable of doing with their all-Americans on defense and Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback. I've said it time and time again, I do not want to see Nick Saban win another championship. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm tired of looking at his cranky face. I'm rooting super hard for Clemson, but I'm not going to break down X's and O's and things of that nature because you've seen Alabama play. They are a machine down there. We all know that. Can Clemson win? Well, they're in the game, so obviously they can. Uh, we saw what happened last year when they played in the semifinal. That was just a an obliteration can we expect that this time around listen I could see Alabama winning this game by 10 Uh, I could see it being close almost like a prize fight where both teams are kind of feeling each other out then all it takes is just a break we never know when you're going to get turnovers in a game or a big play that's going to swing the momentum uh, of any game for that matter but especially in the magnitude of this championship game Uh, but I could see it being toward the end where Alabama will pull away Togovalo will probably end up being your MVP or most important player or outstanding player, whatever they call the trophy now. And again, Alabama, top of the college football world, which I hope it doesn't happen. I really don't because I'm sick and tired of seeing them. But uh, And we all know these college games take forever, so hopefully they start at 8.05 and not 8.10 with pomps and circumstances because these games go three hours and a half minimum. And hopefully it's not a game that will be boring or will you think that Alabama will have pretty much in control despite the fact that Clemson does come back and make it a game. You know, you want it to be as close and as competitive as it possibly could be. Uh, similar to the game you saw two years ago where Deshaun Watson pulled their team out of the fire and won a national championship in the final seconds. Now listen, that would be ratings gold for ESPN if they could get something like that, but you don't want a game that you're going to be checked out at halftime. Or a game that you know, third quarter, if Bama's up, you know, 27 to 10. And even though 27 13, 27 20, but Bama has the ball and they're marching down the field and they go up 14. Listen, there's no excitement in that. So hopefully next week, now the game will be long gone and out of the minds of a lot of people's memories as far as not only football, because everybody's focused on the NFL, especially in this part of the country in the Northeast, but. Hopefully I can come on next week and recap this game and say, wow, what a game by Clemson. I mean, if there's anything earth-shattering, who knows? Maybe I'll have a special pod, which chances are it's not going to happen. It's college football. Not too many people are wrapped up into that in this neck of the woods. But at the same time, you'd only hope for the Tigers and Dabo Sweeney and their lot and cast of characters to go ahead and not going to say they're going to put a punishment or a whipping on the Crimson Tide, but hopefully make it a game and somehow, some way, pull it out to where they become national cha- you know, champions. And if that happens, then we shall all rejoice and hope that the Duke Blue Devils of college basketball gets uh, knocked out of the tournament and so then we could all have a peaceful spring and summer and uh, sleep well into the night like we do in the wintertime if you're an anti-Yankee fan like myself, if you listen to this podcast. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, what you have with the college football. And let's segue to the baseball News as we are now into January, and who knows what's going to happen with the the whole Machado and Harper sweepstakes. There's all these reports coming out where it's Machado liking the Yes Network on Instagram, 
whether it's Harper with his five-hour meeting with the Nationals before the new year, or the White Sox going to be involved. Well, supposedly they made an offer to Machado and his representatives, but nothing has come out of that as of 11.50 a.m. here Eastern time. So with those we put to, to the side for now because there's no latest news on that. But as far as the locals here with the Mets and Yankees, the Mets have actually made three trades over the weekend. So Brody's certainly trying to wheel and deal, but not going to the Tiffany's or Bergdorf Goodman's of the world. He's actually going to the Kmart and dollar stores to get guys, and no offense to the Keon Broxtons of the world, J.D. Davis, the kid they got uh, from the Astros, and they traded Kevin Ploiecki to the Indians for more minor leaguers. So if they're looking to stockpile their farm system, I don't know if these trades will certainly do it. Keon Broxton, who is an outfielder who has a very good glove, has shown some promise with the bat, hit 20 home runs a couple years back. But I don't know if he's going to be a guy that uh, is going to get Met fans all giddy and certainly does it add some depth and a right-handed stick. It does. But if you're thinking of A.J. Pollock and, huh, dare I say Bryce Harper, that goes right out the window. There's no way they're going to bring in Pollock here when you have a flood of outfielders as, as it is to begin with. Mostly of the left-handed variety, whether it's Conforto, Nemo, <clears throat> excuse me, but now you bring in Broxton, who's probably going to be a center fielder, you would think. Or I'm sure he'll go at it with Ligaris. Ligaris, remember, he's making $9 million. I believe he's in the last year of a contract, so he's going to get every opportunity to make this ball club unless somehow, some way they find a taker for the former gold glover. And the Mets, you know, they still need another reliever, I think. And we get it that Brody, he's going to say, hey, we're working, we're doing whatever we can to fortify this ball club, and rightfully so, but he made the one big trade. I understand he brings in Familia back and brings in a catcher in Ramos. Now, why did they tender Travis Darno when they certainly could have kept Ploiecki? I rather would have kept Ploiecki. I know there's more promise with Darno as far as his bat's concerned, but we all know Travis Darno's made out of plastic. So to me, I thought I would have kept Ploiecki and let Darno go on to greener pastures. So if you're a Mets fan right now, all right, they're making some moves. Looks fine, but it seems like Brody Van Wagenen has gone the way of the Sandy basement bargain, bargain hunting, looking for players to try to plug and play and hopefully produce for this upcoming season. I mean, Keon Brox- Broxton is not going to have you dancing in the aisles to think that, hey, we just made a step closer to a playoff or, God forbid, or God willing, a World Series. So... When you look at the Mets here, you only hope that they – now, they're not going to make another splash. I mean, at least I wouldn't think. Because now they got their center fielder, their catcher. They got a second baseman. They only got the relief pitcher. I'm sure they're going to probably look for another relief pitcher out there, not along the likes of Craig Kimbrell or Adam Adovino, two guys that are still out there. But I would think as of right this second, unless somehow, some way, they just get an overwhelming offer from somebody for some player – that makes sense to the Met budget that I would think they're going to stand put right here. Yeah, they'll probably have another reliever, a guy that you're not even thinking of or a guy that, oh, really, he's still around? Oh, I could see that. So we'll see what, that, uh, what happens. And funny enough, because the Mets, in that Broxton deal, they actually traded one of the guys that they got back for familiar, this Bobby Wall, who pitched in relief for the Mets in a handful of games last year, got a cup of coffee and did nothing. So, to me, and he's 26 years old, so you're not going to look at that and go crazy. But I could see Brody making some sort of deal for that seventh inning pitcher, whomever that may be. You know, David Robertson now is in Philadelphia as he signed two years, $25 million, and the Yankees re-signed Zach Britton for three for 39. So those two guys are off the table. So, like I said, it's probably going to be a guy that, who knows if it's going to be a Greg Holland or somebody that's way off the radar that you're thinking, oh, okay, all right, well, let's plug him in and see what he's going to do. And that's going to be it. So if you're a Met fan right now, listen, are you excited that they're doing something, anything? Yeah, but you want it to be – and not everybody could be top-flight, all-star, blue-chip type players. We get that. But you're holding out hope, especially in the outfield. Now, you need a right-handed stick, so Harper, although, hey, he could fit on any team – but you knew that they weren't going to go that route because of the money and the years that they have to invest. So 
they went with a guy instead of Pollock, who gets hurt a lot, but has a lot of promise as a former All-Star. They go with a guy who's athletic, who has a good glove, has some pop, doesn't really hit for average, but we'll see if he becomes your center fielder for the Mets season 2019. And as far as any other baseball stuff here, no, that's about the bulk of it. Still waiting, as I said before, with the Harper Machado stuff. It was also a report that, yeah, the Osmani Grandal turned down $60 million from the Mets, and he's still unemployed and hasn't found himself a home. So you know what? And I'm glad that that's the case because if they were signed Grandal, it would have been a waste of money. It would have been a waste, period. So Ramos, you could probably you could look at. Ramos at two years at $18 million. Now he's a cheaper, and he has had his – history of uh, injuries but uh, I would have preferred him over Grandal any day so in the days and weeks to come we'll see where uh, he falls or where he goes to here as we're now five weeks away five from pitchers and catchers reporting down in Florida and Arizona as we turn our attention to the NBA a lot of things happening in the association over the course of the last week as far as the locals are concerned break up the nets how about them 12 of the last 15 they've won they're now a game under 500 this late in the season, and now at the halfway point, they're 20 and 21. So a lot of the NBA teams are close to, or if not at the halfway point. I know the Celtics are 23 and 15, so they're still four games away, or really three. But you have a lot of teams that have uh, are ready to think. NBA is halfway through. You have the All Star break, which will take place in about a, a little over a month, which you'll get a lot of rumors and a lot of trade prospects out there for a lot of NBA teams as they try to fortify their clubs for the stretch for what's going to be a two-month marathon in the NBA. But uh, kudos to the Nets for playing well. And it's good. At least one New York team is uh, doing fine. And the other team across the river here in Manhattan from Brooklyn, the Knicks finally snapped a long eight-game winning streak and actually beat the Lakers. Now, of course, no LeBron. LeBron's going to be out, I believe. I've read a report three more games with his groin that he suffered on Christmas. So obviously they want him back 100%. And the Knicks, you're just riding it out, hoping to not necessarily tank because, as we all know, this team has just a lot of young players. They, you know, they're trying on the Fisdale, but they just don't have enough talent to compete with a lot of these teams in the leagues. But uh, we all know the big carrot is out there. And Zion Williamson, who we all know and all think is going to be a one and done. So Knicks fans, whether they're uh, with the Suns and the other dregs of the league, they're just hoping to get that number one pick. It doesn't guarantee they only have a 14% chance if they have the worst record in the league. So that's still a ways down down the road. You still have a whole half a season to play if you're a Knicks fan. But the Nets certainly playing well. And kind of wonder if they're going to do anything to kind of put themselves in positioning. I mean, they're actually, right now, when you think about it, although they signed Spencer Dinwiddie a couple weeks ago, you know, they don't have a lot of money invested in these play. I mean, you know, they have Alan Krabs of the world and guys like that where – Obviously, they're making big money, but not for long term. So we know that come this year, they could actually go out and spend and bring in a high price free agent or I believe two. That's how far into the cap they'll be. So will Brooklyn go out and make a deal to kind of bring a player that's on an expiring contract or maybe has a year left after this? Probably not. But if they're in the hunt and if they're in the mix, who knows? If they know that they could probably catapult themselves to middle of the pack because when you look at the Eastern Conference, they're only separated by just a handful of games. I know that's how it was out West where you had all those teams kind of jumbled up, but pretty much kind of the same in the East, although there is some separation. But as I uh, do a little research here, let's see. Yes, as far as the Eastern Conference is concerned, all you could hope and look for if you're a Net fan. Now, listen, are you going to go far at the end of the day? Are you going to go to a conference final or an NBA final? Absolutely not. But right now with Brooklyn there at the seventh slot, yeah, the separation from five to eight, but one through four is separated by three games. And the West is a different story. From one to eight, they're only separated by six and a half, and then you have Utah and Sacramento as well as Minnesota right after that. So West is a lot more competitive. And... Again, if you're a Net fan, the 20 of you that are out there, I'm sure you're giddy and excited and hoping to see a playoff team. Even if you don't go far, which chances are you probably won't, but still, you always like to have hope and 
visions dancing in your head of some upsets and some sort of advancement in a postseason. But, hey, we'll certainly uh, see where this uh, shakes down over the course of the not only the last few months of the season, but as we lead into the All-Star break with all the, like I mentioned, the possible trade rumors that will be floating around at that time. As far as the rest of the NBA is concerned, I know you have Jimmy Butler in the news again in Philadelphia who is questioning the offense and his role with Coach Brett Brown. Is that a shocker? Who Now all of a sudden Jimmy Butler has become a detriment to coaches and players alike. Now we know he's a good player, and if you've heard my podcast before, he's a guy that is going to get his money out there. We all know he's going to be a free agent, but is he a max money guy? Absolutely not. I'm sorry. I will not pay this man max money. And... So far, from everything the sources have come out with that, a lot of him has been refuted. People say that he's been in Philadelphia, he's been the good soldier, seemed like his teammates like him, so who knows if how true that is. But that's certainly a story or an angle that a lot of people are going to be watching considering what happened in Minnesota. And we all know news came down where Coach Thibodeau and VP of Operations had been let go of Minnesota, so... Ryan Sanders, who was the assistant coach, is now the interim. And Thibodeau, a lot of people thought that he was going to be a good fit with that team, with the young players that he had. Obviously, Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, for starters. But Tibbs, we all know, he's a defensive coach. He's trying to bring that, not to say that that 90s style of NBA back, but we all know this is a three-point shooting league. This is an offensive league that we haven't seen since the 80s. And... Whatever Thibodeau was doing is certainly not. He certainly hasn't adapted to today's NBA, and look where it got him. I mean, he was there pretty much two years, and you would think as great as that hire was at the time, having that young core, having a group that could have the potential to move up in the Western Conference, but they've certainly regressed and not progressed. So Thibodeau's gets shown to the door, so he's gone. You also have uh, last week Daryl Morey, the GM of the – Houston Rockets coming out and saying that James Harden is the greatest offensive player in the history of the NBA. Well, uh, I guess he's going to say nice things about his top player who's making $228 million over the course of the next five years, but greatest of all time. And there's actually people that have come out. I I can't put names on it, but I've read where people said, hey, he's arguably up there. Well, I guess 50 and 25 for Will Chamberlain doesn't count for anything, does it? Or, I mean, we won't even get into Michael Jordan. We won't get into some of the other players that have come through this league. But, you know, listen, uh, not to knock Harden. Harden is a very good offensive player. He could put up all these numbers now whenever he wants. But when the guy doesn't show up in enormous games, I'm talking about savior season type games, when he's shooting two of eight, when he's missing three-pointers left and right, l- l- tell me how great of an offensive player he is from that standpoint. Because we could look on the basket- back of his basketball card, and, yes, regular season – you can't dispute it. The guy's become an all-NBA player and obviously an MVP last year. But when you, when the money is on the line, and I could go back to a million games that he's blown, and I have go back to other podcasts that I've had early on, especially around the playoffs, or if you want, I could bring it up right now. Game six against San Antonio two years ago in the postseason when the guy fouled out and had eight points or whatever it was. Game six with life on the line against the Clippers. That was when the... Two players, Corey Brewer and Josh Smith, had to bail their season out to bring him back to Houston. And where was James Harden? On the bench. And what happened to him last year? Game seven at home against Golden State. A game where they were up 3-2 in the series, right? They lose to Golden State and then, or at Golden State, and then they come home and they missed 27 three-pointers, and he was a part of that. Oh, but he's the greatest you know, offensive player we've ever seen. Well, all right, you could do that against all the the Sacramento's, and Sacramento's been good this year, so I don't want to pick on them. But, you know, you could do it against Phoenix. You could do it against Atlanta. You could do it against, you know, all these bad teams. And he does it against the good teams, too. Got to give him credit. Golden State, he hit that three-pointer there with two guys in his face at the end. Right. And then he does it against the good teams, too. I don't want to say that he just does it against the bad teams because he does it against the top teams in the league. But uh, can we see this in a, in a huge spot? Can we see him pull his team out of the fire to go to an NBA final? Or go to a conference final? before we anoint this guy to be the greatest offensive player ever? That's all I'm saying. And then you even had Steph Curry come out. And I mentioned about Golden State, and I had this conversation with my son when I went to visit him a few weeks ago. 
And right, it's easy to come out and say, ah, oh, Golden State's going to win. They're going to just give them the title, so on and so forth. I don't think so. And I'm not going based on two or three games. I'm going based on what I see. And when you look at that game against Houston, they blew a 20-point lead at home, and even to Steph Curry to come out and say, hey, there's no way a team like us should lose a game where we're up by 20. And he's right. And they've blown, and they've been blown out in their building several times. I don't know if there's some undermining. I don't know what's going on there. Obviously, I don't have a finger on the pulse there, but this is definitely not the same Golden State team that we've seen time and time again. And listen, last year, as much as people say, well, all they got to do is just flick the switch and turn it on and they'll be at the end. Well, yeah. Is there some truth to that? Absolutely. But at the same time, they were this close to being ousted in the postseason last year on two occasions, meaning game six and seven against Houston. And we saw what happened there. And anytime you're going to give Golden State just an inch of daylight, they're going to bust through the door. That's a team where if you put your foot on their neck and we understand they have the pedigree and it's not as if they can't dig themselves out of that, but that's the type of team that once you continue to just suffocate them and put them in that sleeper hold, you got to make sure that they tap out. You just can't say, oh, I got the sleeper hold, this is good enough, and then next thing you know, they have one last breath and 23s later, they win the game and they go on to the next series. But I don't know. I, there's something off with that Golden State team. And again, four finals in a row, a lot of miles, a lot of tread on those tires right now. And who knows, if they're disinterested, if they're just waiting for April. Listen, we just turned the calendar to January, so they still got another three months plus before they even think about the postseason. So still plenty of time, not to get crazy, but I don't know about Golden State this year. That's all I got to say. Did I pick him to go to the final? I did, but, and listen, who cares about that right now? The point of the matter is that Golden State certainly isn't clicking on all cylinders as we become accustomed to, and I don't know if they're going to have it in them to win a final. Will they make it to a final? Chances are they probably will, but, again, something else to uh, take a look at here as we head deeper into the season. And then lastly, how about the New York Islanders, NHL? Now, the Islanders have a home-and-home against the Rangers later on in the week, which I think is going to be big because the Islanders are on a six-game winning streak. Their goalie's finally playing well. Robin Lanner, who they got in a trade there with Buffalo. And now you only – it's amazing to think that they've performed the way they have, and now they have – you know, they're performing at the Coliseum now. So that's also another factor if you want to throw that in the mix. Now, they haven't sold out the building. So it's not as if the Islanders have – I mean, their fans have certainly packed that building. They had the Blackhawks there the other night. And we understand the Blackhawks aren't the same team, although they still have the pedigree and their firepower, Patrick Kane, et cetera. But when you have only, what is it, 12,000 people in a 16,000-seat building? I mean, come on. As much as they cried and moaned, oh, you know, we're losing our team. Well, it's not as if they're uh, filling into capacity or close to it. And the team's playing, obviously, they're playing well. Kudos to Barry Trotz. Kudos to what they're doing. And we just hope it continues. Now, the Rangers are going to be an interesting test because the Rangers have been up and down. They got shut out last night in Arizona. They have a home-and-home home Thursday and Saturday. So let's see if the Islanders could still – they're in the middle of the pack in the Metropolitan, So, and it's a very competitive East. So right now, as those teams are hitting the halfway point, or even past it because I know the All-Star break's coming up, we'll see where the Islanders kind of fit in the wild-card mix – We'll talk about that more as we get later in the month. Maybe after the All-Star break, we'll get into it, especially once the Super Bowl has come and gone because then we can concentrate more on the winter sports. We could certainly delve more into the basketball, the college basketball, as well as the hockey when we go through that slow period because right now, obviously, it's pretty much going to be predominantly NFL and whatever MLB hot stove stuff that comes down the pike, especially with the two free agents that we've mentioned. And uh, that's pretty much it. And then Tampa is reeling off. A lot of people think Tampa was going to go to a cup final and have a big regular season, and they're certainly on their way. Before losing to San Jose the other day, they won 15-16, so they're tops in the NHL with, uh, what is it, 66 points. So they're certainly playing at their peak right now. Nobody's even close to 10 points, I believe, as far as the President's Trophy early standings are concerned. So Tampa's certainly flying high there in the East, far and away the top team, not only in the East but in the league. And like I said, we'll delve into it more once we get later into the month, into early February, once football exits stage right 
and we could certainly put all our attention to the winter sports as you move forward here on the J-Reels podcast. So that's going to be it. I uh, hope you enjoyed this first one of the year. Please tell your friends, people who love sports, like sports, into sports, getting into sports, whatever it may be. You can find me at uh, www.jreels.com. That's J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z. You could also check me out on any of my social media accounts, J-Reels on Instagram, J-Reels1, just the number on Twitter, the J-Reels podcast on Facebook. Please send me a message, any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I don't care. Just send it to me. Also, an email address at the J-Mail, the J-Reels podcast at gmail.com. And also, more importantly, subscribe, people. Tell your friends. Tell everybody. All they have to do is just go on their phone, hit their podcast app, or if not, whatever they use, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, even Spotify. That's right. You could not only stream your favorite playlist, but you could also get the J Reels podcast on there. All they have to do is just search the J Reels podcast, hit subscribe. It'll come right to your phone the minute it posts up. And you know I'm here every Monday. I try to have it posted uh, anywhere between 3 and 5 Eastern. So on your commute home, you get the chance to listen to me, recap all the NFL stuff, everything that's going on in the world of sports. You'll have it right there on your phone or your tablet, wherever you get your – or on any device, wherever you get your podcasts. So please, because without your participation, all I want to do is just have the popularity increase in the sports podcast universe to generate more interest and, of course, hopefully down the road for more guests, which I'm uh, certainly working on behind the scenes – uh, as best as I can to do that, to provide not only the best but top sports content. And again, I'm driving a ship by myself, people. I'm uh, navigating this Millennium Falcon through the podcast universe to try to bring you everything, the latest and greatest, the best, whatever it may be, whether it's on the diamond, the ice, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, here on the j Rose Podcast each and every week for your edification. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.